It's good to see all of you this morning. We're going to go to Exodus 20 here in just a moment, but uh, before we get there, I want to say uh, thank you for all of you that knew to pray for Brenda's uncle, Uncle Obi. Obi Dykes, and that is his given name. That's not a nickname. Obi Dykes, born in 1929. Would have been 89 years of age, December the 30th of this year, and didn't quite make it there. But, uh, you know, we got to visit him several times over the last couple months when he really started declining seriously. Prayed with him numerous times, and um, just a day after hearing about Pastor John Sayers, unexpected, here is Pastor John, 58 years of age, and dies suddenly from a massive heart attack. And his, his church that morning, that was a Saturday night, and he was supposed to preach that next morning at his church in Madison. I will tell you something about that situation, because we're kind of close to that, and I couldn't attend his memorial and Obi's memorial Thursday because they both landed on the same day. Some of you might know of the Rock Church in Huntsville, Pastor Rusty Nelson. It's a multi-campus church, a large church. Um, you know, Paul, we see their Royal Rangers. They have a big Royal Ranger ministry there. Uh, he and his wife showed up at the ER when they found out that John was rushed to the ER, was there with Julie as a... Uh, the reality that he didn't make it. And not only did they minister to them, knowing the devastation that would come to his church and his staff as that news was known to the rest of the church, he called one of his staff members up, arranged for that person to preach the main message at the Rock Church, and he went over to Madison First Assembly and filled in just to minister to the church. You know, that, that's a great guy that uh, would leave a very large gathering, a lot of time and everything going into a Sunday. Uh, all of this doesn't happen just because we decide to get here and figure out what we're going to do. There's a, there's a lot of things going on leading up to today. But um, just a day after hearing about John, we got word that Obi had passed away. So uh, we were in Laurel, Mississippi for a good part of uh, Thursday with the memorial. Also, thank you for praying for David Meggs, uh, Ray's brother, who finished his journey this past week. Ray and Debbie got to be there and share some moments with him before he passed away. Uh, his uh, memorial service is Tuesday. So keep Ray and his family in prayer. A long battle. It just makes you so angry with cancer. Such a, a, a brutal, awful enemy. But uh, today I can tell you that O.B. Dykes does not have cancer. And David Meggs does not have cancer. It stayed here when they left for there. And that's the good thing about it, isn't it? Uh, well, let's get to the message. I've, I've titled this, Worship God, the Decalogue. And uh, Josh's brother really creates some good graphics for, for me on this, and he says, uh, I want to try this MP4 out. So how'd you like that, huh? The Decalogue, uh, worship God. We're going to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, I kind of touched on this last Sunday, but in a different way. Uh, the Ten Commandments, I mentioned the Ten Commandments, how God with thunder, lightning, and all of, all of this awe that he came down on Mount Sinai and, and wrote with his own hand 
those Ten Commandments. And we, they're called the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments of God. They are the first order of structure. Think about this. When Abraham was living with Sarah, and before they got to this point, like in Genesis 15, I'm going to reference Genesis 15. By the way, just keep your Bible handy uh, because we're going to hit some different places. There was really no law that anybody knew of, like rules. What were the rules of community? There was, there's really no ancient history other than the Code of Hammurabi was uh, a Babylonian uh, codified law. It's one of the oldest, as is the Mosaic law, the, the, the law of Moses is a codified law, meaning if somebody stole something from you, what's the punishment? If somebody kills someone accidentally, what's the punishment? When you go through Exodus and Leviticus, that's like the first introduction to a codified law. If you kidnap someone, what happens? All of these things that, that are spelled out, this is what happens. But before any of that is given to Moses to articulate to the people of Israel, I'm sure that Pharaoh had a law, and it was, do whatever I tell you or I will kill you. You know, maybe that was the, the common law. But when Moses was given Ten Commandments, God gave him other things. But the Ten Commandments prefaced all of that. Before you get to verse 2, which is the first commandment that he gives in the Decalogue, and this is God's statements. These are not Moses telling us what God said. This is literally the words of the Lord and the writing of God upon those tablets. He prefaces the Ten Commandments with verse 1. And uh, it's kind of like a renewing of, of the law. And, and I think if the, if the next slide is up there, you see Exodus 21. This is what the Lord says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. And the very next words are that first commandment. You shall not have any other gods before me. But go back to that first sentence. That kind of defines what he's about to say. The first four commandments has to do with our relationship with God, the first four. The last six have to do with our relationship with each other. And it's, it boils down to if you can put those ten directives in play in your life, you're going to have a pretty healthy life. Now, you remember when Jesus was asked by someone, what is the greatest commandment? You remember that? And what did he say? Well, the first one is like this, and the second one's kind of like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And that is coming from, from Deuteronomy 6. And then he says, and the second one is like, it, love your neighbors yourself. In two statements, he reduced what he said, all the prophets and all the laws can be reduced to two statements. If you love God, and if you love others, all of these things on these Ten Commandments, they're not going to be factors. Because love is the way you serve God, how you handle these first four commandments. But this is a renewing of covenant. There's two things in that first verse that you ought to circle in your Bible when he says, I am, meaning present tense, I am the Lord, and the other one, your, your God. He's making a personal connection to the people of Israel. I am, and, and that statement means I've always been the one over you, but you belong to me. And this is covenant language. He's actually renewing the covenant that he established with Abraham 
over in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, 18 is the other passage on the script in front of you on the slide. He says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants. And that's when he promised the land of Canaan to Abraham. But what happened before that? On that day, God established this covenant with Abram. On that day, this is what happened. God told him the animals to get and the animals to sacrifice. And he says, lay them, when, when you divide these animals as sacrifices, lay them opposite each other and just wait, just be there. And when the sun started going down, uh, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. But while he was sleeping, God spoke to him and prophesied to him about what was going to happen to his descendants, the 400 years of slavery. And then the fourth generation, he was going to bring them out and he was going to give them the land. When he wakes up, he sees this smoking fire pot, this furnace-like presence walking between these pieces of animal coming toward him. And then there's that next verse. On that day, the Lord made a covenant. In fact, the, the word covenant, the verb part is to make a covenant means to cut the covenant. The strongest covenant that anybody could make in that culture was a blood covenant with blood, and they would walk between the two pieces and agree on whatever they were making a covenant. It's the strongest covenant. But get this. Abram didn't walk through the animals. Only God in his presence walked through the animals, meaning this. This was an unconditioned covenant that he didn't need Abraham to walk through the to those pieces. It was solely based on the authority of God and the veracity and the truth of God that what he told him would come to pass. There was no question about it. And then he says, you will not have any other gods before me. Scholars believe that the presence of God that walked between those pieces of sacrifice was none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus the pre-incarnate Son of God. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, past tense, I am. Now, that's a powerful statement. That meant he predated Abraham. And the Scripture says, nobody's ever seen God and lived. So the times that Moses saw the Lord and even the time and specifically the time when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the, seating on the temple, on the throne, in the temple. John says that he really was seeing Jesus in all of his pre-incarnate glory. So here's Jesus walking. What do you think that represents? Jesus walking through and making this covenant with Abraham. One day that he would be the physical part of the physical descent of Abraham but also the descent of God in our culture, in our world, walking to the cross, bearing our sins. He didn't need any of us to do anything sacrificially. He was doing it all. In fact, grace means that you and I cannot add anything to this equation. The 100% cost of our salvation was paid by Jesus. Not 99%, all of it. And really, truly, we don't even choose him. We can say we choose him, but the scriptures makes it clear that he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He says, well, okay, how do we come to him? We respond to his choosing us. 
We respond to the Holy Spirit speaking to us and revealing Christ to us in a, not an informational way, but in a relational way. There's a lot of people who know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know him. They don't know him in a personal, intimate, encounter way. I remember talking to a man. Uh, I'm not going to say what kind of uh, the discipline or what kind of church communion he was acquainted with, but his family, who was not even believers, was connected to me where I was pastoring in Florida, in Jacksonville, said he's dying, he's dying of cancer, and, and he needs a minister. I guess I could be like a priest and go bless him and, and do whatever the priest's supposed to do. But I went in, and his wife was, this was a very wealthy family, lived in an exclusive neighborhood of Jackson, Florida. And I walk in, she, I get the feeling she doesn't really want me there, but she's tolerant of me being there. And I walk in, and he is obviously dying. He's, he's ravaged by cancer. And I start talking to him, and as soon as I talk about the Lord, he starts telling me about him being in the, in the children's group and all of this in church and he was an altar boy and and all the things and he began to tell me all this history in church i said really, really i'm not talking to you about church i'm talking about jesus yeah and he would go ahead and rehearse again what he's in church and and i'm thinking he's not he's not getting what i'm trying to ask him and i said listen i guess what i'm trying to ask you is this have you ever had a personal encounter with jesus that radically changed your life and I remember this thing, he just sit there and pause for me and says, no, I, I don't think that's ever happened to me. He's knocking, something's knocking on the heart, your heart, speaking to you. And why that? I said, well, that's Jesus talking to you. He wants you to know him. Not know about him, he wants you to know him. He said, can I pray with you? And, and he says, yes. And I pray with him and I says, and if you really... If you really feel convicted, I don't, a sinner's prayer doesn't save anybody. A sinner's faith in God when they pray is what connects to salvation, okay? So I, I said, can you pray after me? And he prayed after me. And when I said amen, this man had his hands raised, laying in bed with tears rolling down his eyes saying, thank you, Jesus. I said, it worked. <laughs> it, it really worked. The guy had this encounter with Jesus. And I walked out, and of course, his wife wasn't very happy that I just made a radical evangelical out of her dying husband. She really didn't. She didn't like, like what happened back there. But I walked out and says, God, you're still not willing that any should perish because you chose that man today when he wasn't even thinking about choosing you. We only respond to him when we feel the weight of him speaking to us. And when we've had that experience, there is nothing that can convince us otherwise. When he says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, he was really talking about worship. He said, how does worship fit into this? Just stay with me. Think about Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy means the repeat of the law, and this is a book that Moses is writing at the end of his journey. He can see the promised land He's been told by the Lord, you can't go in because you disobeyed me by hitting the rock instead of speaking to it. So he can see it. He even asked God one day, uh, like, come on. <laughs> I made it this far. Can, and the Lord basically told him he didn't want to talk about it anymore. Okay? But he's writing Deuteronomy. This is a recounting of the law. And the Ten Commandments, the repeat of the Ten Commandments is in chapter 5. Then the 
covenant of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. And if you will love him with all your heart, that's in Deuteronomy 6. And in Deuteronomy 7, this is, I think, maybe on the screen, but listen to this. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were numerous, more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. This is this choosing that has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with him. He said, I didn't choose you because you were like, wow, that's a really good group of people. I could do something with them. Look how many there are. But he looks at them and says, well, there's not many of them, but I, I'm going to use them. And there's still not many Jews in the world, not compared to other ethnicities. But he says, I'm going to choose you not because you're so prominent, because you're so few. I'm going to use you to communicate to the world that it matters when God chooses you and puts his blessing. And he wanted them. He didn't want to save them and the world be lost. He wanted them to become the picture of his grace to the other world. This is his whole point. I want you to be the example of those who are following after other gods who are not gods, but you're to have no other gods in front of you but me, and that will be communicated to the people around you. Maybe they'll come to faith. He says, Know therefore the Lord your God is God. He is faithful, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. Well, here's the thing about worship. That's the covenant renewed that's going on in Exodus 20. Abraham's covenant. But there is a search for worshipers, not just an allowance. I'm going to tell you something. Hear these kids worship up here. Come on. Come on. I want to tell you something. If there is something going on today that the devil doesn't like, it's these kids getting excited about the Lord singing. This is breath in our lungs, and boy, did they sing with their lungs. They ran out of that grave. They kind of darted out of the grave. They might have ran over somebody running out of the grave. You get out of their way when they run out of the grave. You know, to hear them worship. And God is searching for people to worship him. I want to take you to John 4. I told you to keep your Bibles handy. You know the story. The woman at the well, she's a Samaritan. Jesus is a Jew. And they're... They, find themselves at the same location and they're not supposed to have any, they're not even supposed to hardly look at each other, let alone talk to each other. The great difference, the divide, the, the, the racial divide between them was so distinct. And then he asked her to give him a drink of water and then the conversation is on. You're, you're not even supposed to talk to me. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman and that's not a poor, according to our culture. But in this conversation, he, she realizes he knows how broken her life is. And he starts talking to her about living water. And that conversation leads to worship. <laughs> the Jews versus Samaritans worship. Uh, there just might be a little bit of competition in worship today, right? Style of worship. You know, this style, I don't like that style. And there's like, location was the big deal. Well, you Jews worship, we worship here on this mountain. This is our place of worship. We know how to worship. And Jesus kind of speaks to that, but he doesn't dwell on the argument. Instead, what he says, you know, worship is really about in Jerusalem. But listen to this, and I think this verse may be up here. Yet a time is coming and has now come. 
as of right now at this well, <laughs> that it's not about location. When true worshipers, isn't that something that he uses the word true worshipers? I guess the other would be fake worshipers. I don't know. But true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And here is an awesome statement. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. In other words, he is searching, reaching, seeking those kind of worshipers. It's not only that it's okay with him if we worship him. He wants a certain worship that could have music, not have music, that could be on Sunday, could be on Monday, could be on Wednesday, could be in the middle of the night, could be in the middle of the day. It's not about location, not about time. God is seeking. I'm telling you, God is seeking worshipers like these children this morning. He wants that. He wants them to abandon themselves and not worry about decorum and what people think about me and just worship with abandonment in spirit and in truth because he's redeemed us. Not only the mode of worship that God honors, it's he's seeking these kind of worshipers. But here's an alert. Here's an alert to you this morning. You're going to be in a fight to do that. Because there is an opposition that is real to you. It's real to us. We might, we might think it is you know, in Haiti this kind of stuff takes place. And in the dark regions of the world, this takes place. Satan doesn't have much to do here. I think Satan has as much to do with American life as he does with any other American any other life. Listen to this. The opposition is real. Jesus gets baptized, and the Holy Spirit moves him up into a wilderness setting all by himself with no water, no food for 40 days. 40 days with nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and it is war. It is Satan's moment to throw everything he can throw at the Son of God. And you know the temptations. He attacks his human side first. He's hungry. The humanity of Jesus is feeling 40 days of no food and 40 days of no water. And he goes for that. You think the devil goes for your weakness? He, he kind of, uh, Paul said, or Peter said, that Satan is like a roaring lion roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. And, and if you ever watch National Geographic, lions are some of the most lazy predators you'll ever find. They don't like to run very long. They like to sleep all day. So their hunting is really measured. They look at a herd, and most of the time they don't attack a herd. They see an animal that's limping or straggling behind, and they go for that. They go for the easy prey. And this is the opposition we have. The enemy knows he's like that. doesn't mean he can devour it. He's, it just, he's like that. He looks for any weakness we may show him. He can't read your mind. He can't read your thoughts. But he definitely in that evil world knows our behavior patterns, knows where we're weak, and here comes the temptation. In fact, 
Scripture says we are tempted when we're drawn away by our own weaknesses and by our own lust. But the enemy is opposed, if anything, to keep you from worshiping God. Because the last temptation, he, he, he also appeals to his um, maybe emotional, I, I don't know if that's a good way to put it. Um, you know, what was the second temptation? Takes him up on a pinnacle. No, he, that's the last one. Takes him up on a pinnacle and he tells him what? He tells him to, he tells him to jump. Jump off the pinnacle because when you do that in front of people, they're going to go, ooh, and oh, he's like Iron Man. He doesn't even get hurt. And they're like, and he, he appealed to that side of self-glorification. There's no other reason why he says, if you go up to the pinnacle and you jump off, if you're the son of God, people will know in a flash, look at that. He jumped from way up there and it didn't hurt him. And Jesus responds, it is written. Well, the last temptation that he brings at him is showing him all the kingdoms of the earth in exchange for one thing. What is it? Worship. I guarantee Satan is after your worship. He don't care if you do a lot of things, but it matters when you're a worshiper. And it matters when you decide you're going to worship God his way in spirit and in truth. He goes after his worship. What does Jesus say? It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord with, that you only worship God, and him only shalt thou serve. There it is. You are to worship the Lord, and him only you should serve. So Jesus responds that worship belongs singularly to God. It only belongs to God. Look at that passage. Before Christ launches his ministry, there is a battle with the devil. And in that battle, there is this contest over worship. It ought to tell you and me how important worship is to our life. To love God, to express to him, to worship him, to adore him. And the word proskuneo that, that is translated worship actually literally means process toward Cuneo, do you remember what cuneo means? I've mentioned this before. Cuneo means to kiss. And, it, and it's a picture of someone kneeling down and kissing the hand of a monarch of someone to not just, you know, show a submission, but to glorify that person, to extol their position. So it actually means this act of embracing one over you in an act of self-giving. And out of all the, all the books in the Bible, it's mentioned the most time in Revelation. The opposition to worship is real. And it's not that he wants to keep you from worshiping God. He wants to redirect that worship to something else, preferably to himself. If you'll just worship me, I'll give you everything. Of course, he's a liar and he wouldn't back that up. But Jesus wasn't going to shortcut. He, he probably could have so, told him afterwards, says, uh, it doesn't matter, I'm going to take it anyway. <laughs> and besides, it's not yours. It's really mine. So you can't barter with something that's not yours when it's really mine. There's all kinds of deceit involved. But look at the arrogance that Satan comes at Jesus, trying to get him to worship him. And heaven is all about worship. And this is my last point this morning. 
Heaven is all about worship. You know, um, my mother loved worship. She couldn't play the accordion very well, but she played the accordion. She couldn't play the piano very well, but she played the piano. And she would get in that living room and she would sing, bang on that piano. She would sing. She would just in her own world. And then she'd drag us into nursing homes, scare the daylights out of us. You know, people were trying to touch us and we're going through like this, uh, uh, hanging on to her. And like, you know, now I walk through there and I'm like, Lord, forgive me for being afraid of these people. But I was afraid of them. And she'd go to nursing home and she'd play that accordion. They probably couldn't hear half of what she was playing, but they were enjoying it. You know, they were like, but she just loved, she's like that. She sung all the time. She worshiped all the time. Worship was like her. She was a worshiper. That's, that's the culture we grew up in. This woman just would sing and worship. And heaven is perpetual worship. It is a place of continuous worship. People, people have all kinds of ideas what heaven is going to be like. Ah, the fishing is going to be great in heaven. Look at the golf courses and baseball diamonds. Ah, I'll tell you. You know, it's, imagine, it's, it's amazing how much we humanize heaven to be what we want heaven to be. But look at Revelation with me. There's a few places I want to take you. One is Revelation 7. And uh, I may have another one up there. Revelation 4, that's the first one. Um, listen to this. This is early in Revelation. After he said these things to the seven churches. There's 24 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. In other words, they were saying, You deserve what I'm doing right now. To fall on my knees and to cast our crowns at your feet because you deserve it. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. These are the 24 elders. These are the representatives of all the people who are justified by faith in the Old Testament before Christ's death and resurrection. And those 12 tribes of Israel are signified by that, those 12. The other 12 are the 12 apostles who represent the redeemed of the Lord who are post-death and resurrection of Christ, who come to know God. The, the whole people of God are represented by these 24 elders. And what are they doing? They're worshiping the one who sits on the throne. They're, they're, I, don't even, I don't even think they're told to. I think it just happens. Because it's amazing. They're overwhelmed by what they're seeing. And it's not only the redeemed of the Lord that's worshiping in heaven. In fact, when you see Isaiah 6 and you see the revelation of the angels milling around the throne, the seraphim, the six wings, there's, there's worshiping. But look at uh, Revelation 7. This is another slide I have for you. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces. All of them fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Angels who do not know what it means to be lost and saved have no concept of being restored. They are in awe of God. If they're in awe of God, how much should we who've been away and now know him should be in awe of him? They're worshiping him. I know the song I can only imagine was put into a movie, a marvelous movie. And I can tell you, out of the possibilities of what we would do in his presence, probably it would be falling on our face. 
You know, that's part of that song. Dance for you, Jesus. I imagine we have moments like that too. But when you read this, and John is getting, it's kind of like Jesus speaks to John and shows him a video of the future, of heaven being complete, and what it's like when everything is finished. When, when the judgment of God, the white throne judgment of God, the judgment seat of God, all of the judgments are done, and the final destination of heaven and hell is all finished, and everything is over with, and there's a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Why, right at the end, John is overwhelmed by all of it. This is Revelation 22. This is my last verse, and the praise team can come up. John has saw all of this, and more than once he fell on his knees. But he said, I'm the one who heard, this is verses 8 and 9. It should be up on the screen, Revelation 22. I'm the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. He fell at the feet of the angel. Well, I probably would too, right? But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Last two words. Worship God. Worship God. Worship God how? In spirit and in truth. Worship God. He said, how do I do that? You're not going to get any closer to God than how close you are to Jesus. He is our introduction to God. And the closer we get to the Lord, the closer we get to the Son of God, the closer we understand the magnitude and the joy of unabandoned or abandoned worship, just releasing ourselves. And the only way to look forward to that endless, perpetual state of worship. I, I think we have such a bad approach to heaven because people will ask something like this. What do you think we'll do? <laughs> what, what do you think we'll do when we get there? It seems like doing the same thing over and over and over. It's going to be kind of boring. It won't be boring. It will never be boring because right now we're shielded from a reality that we couldn't live if it was put in front of us. We can't see the spirit world. We can't see angels. And more than likely, they're here. And it's all right with me if God never lets one appear to me. If you want to see one, good for you. I hope you get your, your wish. I'm not interested in an angel appearing to me because that might be my ticket to heaven. I'll just check out and go on. But we cannot comprehend. Even, even John falls down and starts worshiping an angel. <laughs> Knowing there was another time when he's already told before this time, get up, don't do that. You know, I'm like one of you. You know, worship God. And then he does it again. I just think it, I just think 
him getting a vision of it was overwhelming. He, he didn't know what to do but just fall on his face. But how do you know that? How do you, how do you have that experience? It begins with us giving God permission to reveal himself to us and to want him to reveal himself to us. He has so much more for you and me. And what holds us back is our filter system. We filter things. We filter like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to be odd. I don't want to do something that, you know, but somehow we need to get to a place where it doesn't matter. Lord, whatever you want to do with me, can, can I tell you, I think he wants us to say to him, Lord, whatever you want from me, to respond to you to respond to worship to respond to the exclusivity that you are the only one deserving of our attention right now nothing beyond this moment matters right now it is right now you are calling us to surrender ourselves to you and to give ourselves up for your kingdom and I'm certain Lord there's people here that need healing they need restoration like the woman at the well, the brokenness of her life. She may have been physically well, but personally she was in shambles. She was hurting to the core of her being. And you changed her life that day. You want to change us today. And some in this room know exactly what that change is. It's already in front of them what they need to let go of. God is calling you, ma'am, you, sir, to let go of it right now. To come and stand here and give him your life with no conditions, no negotiation, nothing on the table, but just a surrendered life. And if that's you, I want you to come. Come, surrender yourself to him. See what he has for you. See what he's wanting to do in your life. Be wide open to what he wants to do. Because he speaks.